about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. read the Bible now. Um, Just a little bit of a heads up as Beck comes up to read us. It's a long reading and it's a story that is actually quite, um, I wonder it's quite upsetting uh, I think in the middle of it. So just uh, be a bit prepared. It's also a bit odd. Uh, So um, yeah, just wanted to give you a heads up. I'm going to pray for us as we hear this and as Matt comes to preach. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these wonderful stories of Elijah and Elisha and we ask now that as we listen to this story that you would speak to us of your goodness and grace in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Hi, I'm Beck. I'm going to read the Bible for us today from Two Kings. It's um, printed in the leaflet uh, that you got on the way in or it's also in the Pew Bibles. 2 Kings chapter 4, starting at verse 8. One day, Elisha went to Shuman, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to to us. One day, when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, Call the Shumanite. So he called her, and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, Tell her, You have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elisha asked. Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant And the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elijah had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. He said to his father, My head, my head. His father told a servant, Carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey, so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today? he asked. It is not the new moon or the Sabbath. That's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God on Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shumanite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? 
Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the, at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a, my, for a son, my Lord? She said. Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, Tuck your cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet, and if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on, uh, on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elijah turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shumanite, and he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Welcome to you today. If you're new or visiting, it's great to have you with us. And if you're with us online, it is fantastic to have you. We are continuing our walk through looking at two kings and the prophet Elisha. We've got this incredible story today. Caleb, I don't know if I loaded my slides from the morning. Can you like, load them up for me? That'd be really good. Now, last week we looked at kind of the bookends of this chapter, which were made up of three different stories. And now we're looking at the middle of the chapter. This whole section has many miracles that Elisha did. Uh, that Jesus often repeats or foreshadows what Jesus will do later in his own ministry. But if you were to kind of take the total of the, the four stories in this whole chapter, all of them are about life and death. Last week we looked at a, a stew that was made that was called a pot of death. Not nice to eat but could kill you. There was a miraculous provision of bread to keep people alive. There was a son being sold into slavery. Death was on the table, and today there is a death. Now, this theme of death and life is really important because the, the religion that they were tempted to worship at this time in Israel's history was Baal. And Baal was, here he is, legend Caleb, here is Baal of a type. Uh, the reason people worshipped Baal was to bring life. He was the god of fertility. He would bring life to fields so grain would prop up. He'd bring life to wombs so babies were born. So in a deathly world, people turned to Baal to bring life. And some, you've got to get your way into the, the thinking that that actually is a helpful way of going about things. But in this chapter, what is on the table is that Baal does not give life, but God does through his prophet, Elisha. 
a demonstration that life belongs to Yahweh, to the God of the Israelites, not to Baal or anything else. Yet the other thing intermingled in this chapter is that death still comes. That the miraculous and the tragic are side by side here. Because that's life. And that's what the walk of faith entails. Trusting in the life-giving God through deathly spaces. So I think this passage speaks to us and how to handle that and where to go to find life in the midst of this world. Three points for you today. Here they are. Tragedy befalls even those with faith. And there are haunting questions in our losses. But life-giving power is found in the least likely place. They're on your outline as well, if you want to follow along. First things first, tragedy befalls even those with faith. In this chapter, all the other stories have the problem emerge very early. And there's a problem being solved. This story starts differently. It starts with a woman who has no problems. In fact, she is on the positive front foot in her life. Read with me, verse 8 of chapter 4. One day Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there. That means she was either really rich or had some level of power and stature, who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. Basically, she makes him come in and eat scones, and they were so good that he keeps coming back again and again and again every time he comes through. Then she says to her husband, I know this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. She has a high regard for Elisha. He's a prominent prophet. He's deserving of honor. She's not just showing hospitality to any person. She's showing hospitality to God's prophet. Let's make a small room on the roof. Let's renovate. Put in a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes for us. She's being hospitable. She's opening space for him as a way of honoring him and honoring God's work through him. She's being pictured here as remarkably faithful. She's a great character in this whole set of stories. One day Elisha's there, I love this, and he's in the room, verse 11, and it says he lay down there. So you've got a picture of Elisha lying on the bed in the room. He says to his servant Gehazi, who suddenly appears in the story, call the Shumamite, he's lying on his bed, call the Shumamite, this is so good, we should do something for her. So she comes, and he says to her, you've gone to all this trouble for us, what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander or the army? Elisha's thinking, you are fantastic. Can I give you some of the power and prestige I have with the governing authorities and make your life a little bit better? She says, I have a home among my own people. Which in Australian is all good, mate. I'm sorted, we're fine. I'm amongst my people, all is fine. Elisha turns to Gehazi. What can be done for her, he says. He's pressing a bit further. Gehazi sees something. She has no son. And her husband is old. There's a little weave of tragedy here in this well-to-do scene where everything is fine. This woman doesn't have a son. And one day when her husband, who's elderly, dies, she may be in a precarious position in society. Sons were the future of a mother in that way. But also there's sadness here, perhaps, for her. Elisha says, call her to us. And, uh, and he says to her, you, about this time next year, you will hold a son in your arms. 
And she says to him, No, my Lord, please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. Now, if you're like me, or if you end up being like me, and having to wait years and years to have a kid, and you have to ride the cycles of hope and utter disappointment again and again and again, you know what those words mean. Don't mislead your servant. Don't raise, your, don't raise my hopes to dash them again, because I've done this roller coaster before. There's tragedy interweaved here. Cycles of loss and pain and longing. Very human ones. Even in this story. And yet there's a remarkable promise. You will have a son in a year. And it comes true. A son comes, miraculously, out of nowhere. But then he grows up. And he goes in the field one day with his father. And cries to his father, my head, my head. And the father tells the servants to take him to his mother. And his mother, and the Hebrew here is so intimate. That she's kind of intimately cuddling and holding him until he dies. It's an awful moment. This is a tragedy that intrudes on this story. The story should be about a faithful woman who didn't have a son and then got one. Praise be to God. But the twist is that a son is given that wasn't asked for, and then is taken away. You see, tragedy comes, even to the faithful. Even those who walk the path with God, honoring his word and his prophet and his power. This is the way life is. There is no dark calculus that things happen because you aren't a faithful enough Christian or person. Tragedies just come in this deathly world without explanation, unexpected, and unseen as they happen here. I think actually this being in Scripture is really helpful for us. It, it names for us the reality that we all will walk through in life or will experience in other people's lives. That tragedy just comes. And in naming it, it frees us to, to keep walking, to faithfully continue, to not be blindsided maybe, and to know that it is not a reflection upon necessarily us. I think that in Sydney, perhaps tragedy sneaks up on us sometime. And it's helpful to remember that death is always lurking in the grasslands of life. And that faith is not a shield or a security from it. And what comes with those, these tragedies, are haunting questions. There are haunting questions in our losses and in the things that befall us in life at times, particularly when it comes alongside with our faith. Now what happens next is very rapid in this story. What will you expect the mother to do at this point? To just break down, perhaps, would be a good response. To weep and to wail and to summon everyone in to cry with her. What does she do? She gets up, verse 21. She lays him in 
the room she's renovated for Elisha. She shuts the door. She goes out. She goes to her husband and says, I am going to Elisha and I am going today. Give me a servant and give me a donkey. He's like, why go today? And she just brushes him off. She just says, shalom, and just keeps walking. She saddles the donkey, tells the servant, just go. Unless I tell you to stop, we are going to Elisha today. And as she's coming up to Mount Carmel to where Elisha is, Gehazi sees her and says, look, there's a Shunammite woman. Oh, sorry, Elisha sees her and says to his servant, look, there's a Shunammite. And and then gets Gehazi to run to her and says, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? And and she, she walks up to Gehazi who's asking all these questions and she just says the same thing to him that she said to her husband. Shalom, just walks straight past him and keeps going. She is going to Elisha, and nothing in the world will stop her. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Elisha doesn't even know what's happening here. He hasn't been told by God, which just adds this whole layer of mystery to what is actually God doing in this instance here? How does this all add up to something that's useful and good in any way? Even the prophet doesn't know. And then she speaks. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said. Didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? Didn't I say... Do not raise my hopes to dash them again. And then you went and you did it. It's a fair question to ask in grief and pain and distress. And friends, there are many things in life, ordering of events, tragedies that befall us, circumstances that arise that have us asking big questions about what on earth is happening, why God allowed it to happen in the order it happened, or why God allowed it to happen at all. And in a life of faith, there are just some questions you have to live with. And that's okay. That's what this story allows for us. Space for them. For the haunting questions that follow us in this deathly life. But did you notice also that what she does here is not just come with that. Notice how she brushes aside Gehazi, and right after this, she, she, she announces, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. In the midst of everything that has happened, she wants to be where she knows life is, and that is with Elisha, because Elisha is the one through whom she's had a son, and there is no other place for her to go and no other ankles to grab that have the life that he has. So in the midst of her distress and her pain, she goes to where life is. Where else would you go? To Baal? No way. To the proven source of life. Even in the distress and the questions. You know, this reminded me of another time when someone else's ankles get get grabbed. And it's after the resurrection of Jesus. He's been crucified and he's raised to life and Mary sees him. And grabs his ankles. And Jesus says, I actually have to go. You're going to need to let go of my ankles. You know, she's watched him die. And she's grabbing onto him as if to say, I'm not leaving you again. 
you know, for us. We know the one who walked through death to life. And in the midst of everything that happens in life, there is no other place to go but him. And we get to come with all the mess and the questions and the tears and the pain. But where else will we go? To numbing side effects, to, to second-guessed answers, to hackneyed half-philosophies? No. We go to him. Because what we see with him is that life-giving power is found in the least likely place. What happens next in the story is neither smooth nor anxiety-free. It is chaotic, and it appears that Elisha doesn't quite know how to get things going. First of all, what he decides to do is he's going to walk to the boy who is dead, but he sends ahead of him Gehazi in verse 29. Tuck your cloak into your belt. Good advice. Take my staff in your hand and run. And he runs and he lays it on the boy's face and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So he runs back to Elisha and says, it doesn't work. It didn't work. And so Elisha comes now, himself. And what does he do? He went in. He shut the door on the two of them and he prayed. He asked God for help because he does not know what's happening and he needs God to act. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. And as he stretched himself out on him, the body's body grew warm. Then he turned away, and what does he do? He anxiously walks back and forth in the room because he's not sure if it's working. And then he gets back onto the boy again. And he sneezes seven times and opens his eyes. In case you're wondering, if you're new to the Bible, this is really strange. All very odd, if that's your experience and your response to this text. But notice how Elisha is so unsure of what is happening here. And yet, he, he, he gets to the point of understanding that in some way, God's power is in him. So that the boy needs to have contact with him. And through that, grows warm and comes back to life. Remarkably. Back from the dead again. It's like in this story. You know how the, the, uh, uh, how the student might push past Gehazi to, to grab hold of Elisha? And here it takes physical contact with Elisha for the miracle to happen. It's like in some unique way, Elisha is carrying the power of God inside him, yet in a way he doesn't really understand. He's kind of clueless to what, how it is actually walking through him. But in some remarkable way, God is conveying his life through his body. Now, the, the even, the, to, to add an even bit more odd here, is that for someone like Elisha, for a priest, say, to touch a dead body, would mean that you couldn't go into the presence of God for a while. In fact, some priests were prevented from even going to see dead relatives 
because it would restrict their service. So for him to lay on top of the boy is to purposefully defile himself, to make himself unclean, to lower himself, to even cut himself out from God's presence to bring life. This is all so crazy. But this is the way that God brings life here. And it is a remarkable picture of who Jesus will be. Jesus who walks around not claiming that he can call God's power down from heaven for people. What does he say? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. People touch his body and power comes out. He is not like Elijah, not really knowing what is happening. He is fully confident and aware that he is God and all of God's life is in him. And to be in his presence, to touch him, to have him, is to have life, to have resurrection life. And how does he bring that life? By defiling himself. By being lifted up on a cross and being nailed and cursed before God. And so being lowered and stretched out can bring life to anyone who touches him. You know, Jesus repeats these miracles of Elisha, but with way more confidence. He walks into a room with a little girl and says, Talith akum, little girl, I say to you, get up, and raises her by the hand. In the kids' Bible, we read with the kids, it says he reached down into death and brought her back up again. Jairus' daughter is, uh, uh, sorry, that was Jairus' daughter. There's a mom walking with a dead son behind her in a funeral procession. And Jesus walks up to her and says, don't cry. Then he went and he puts his hand on the young man and says, young man, I say to you, get up. Full confidence, full awareness that God's power is in him. And he can raise the dead. You see, where this passage leaves us, in the confusion of the ending, but the glory of the ending, that the dead can come back to life, is at the feet of Jesus. The one who we can walk through this deathly life with. The one in whose presence we can suffer tragedies. And we can ask our questions that keep us up and haunt us day to day as we walk through life and they build up in significance and in number. Confident that when we are connected to him, bound to him by faith and by the spirit of God, there will always be life even though we die. Though we go into the ground, we will come up again, as will all who trust in him. I just want to summon you today to him, to his life-giving power, to bring the difficult things you're facing right now to him, and to trust him to bring life a little bit now, And a lot then. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the course of this mortal life, you have given us Jesus Christ, who lowered himself, defiled himself, that he might become a life-giving power that 
by connection with him, we might not just live now, but live forever. And Father, we are so thankful for him and that we can walk with him through this deathly life until we arrive with him before you. Father, we lift to you today the, the, the deathly things that haunt us and ask you to bring us a confidence in the life you've given us in Jesus, both now and forever. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.